0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Skylark 3 by E.E. Doc Smith. This is the second volume in the Skylark series. This second book is set a year after the events of the Skylark of space, during which year antagonist Mark Blackie Duquesne has used the wealth obtained in the previous book to buy a controlling interest in the story's World Steel Corporation, a large company known for its ruthless attitude. When the story begins, Duquesne announces a long absence from Earth to find another species more knowledgeable than the Osnomiums allied with protagonist Richard Seaton. Shortly thereafter, Duquesne and a henchman disappear from Earth. Duquesne, by now aware of the object compass trained on him, travels far enough to break the connection, then turns toward the green system of which Osnome is a part. Seaton and Crane discover that Duquesne is gone, but take a while to go after him. Once they do, however, the usual crazy adventures in space take place that Doc Smith is so well known for. And now, Skylark 3. Chapter 1. Duquesne Goes Traveling In the innermost private office of Steele, Brookings and Duquesne stared at each other across the massive desk. Duquesne's voice was cold, his black brows drawn together. Get this, Brookings, and get it straight. I'm shoving off at twelve o'clock tonight. My advice to you is to lay off Richard Seaton Absolutely. Don't do a thing. Nothing. Hold everything. Keep on holding it until I get back, no matter how long that may be. Duquesne shot this out in an icy tone. I'm very much surprised at your change of front doctor. You're the last man I would have expected to be scared off after one engagement. Don't be any more of a fool than you have to be, Brookings. There's a lot of difference between being scared and knowing when you are simply wasting effort. As you remember, I tried to abduct Mrs. Seaton by picking her off with an attractor from a spaceship. I would have bet that nothing could have stopped me. Well, When they located me, probably with an automatic osnomium ray detector, and heated me red hot while I was still better than 200 miles up, I knew then and there that they had stopped us. That there was nothing we could do except go back to my plan, abandon the abduction idea, and eventually kill them all. Since my plan would take time, you objected to it, and sent an airplane to drop a 500-pound bomb on them. Airplane bomb. All simply vanished. It didn't explode, you remember? Just flashed into light and disappeared, with scarcely any noise. Then you pulled several more of your fool ideas, like long-range bombardment and so on. None of them worked. Still, you got the nerve to think you can get them with ordinary gunmen? I've drawn you diagrams, shown you figures. I've told you in great detail and in one-syllable words what we're up against. Now, I tell you again, they've got something. If you had the brains of a pinhead, you would know that anything I can't do with a spaceship can't be done by a mob of ordinary gangsters. I'm telling you, Brookings, you can't do it. My way is absolutely the only way that will work. But five years, Doctor. I may be back in six months, but on a trip of this kind, anything can happen so I am planning on being gone five years. Even that may not be enough. I am carrying supplies for ten years, and that box of mine in the vault is not to be opened until ten years from today. But surely we shall be able to remove the obstructions ourselves in a few weeks. We always have. Quit kidding yourself, Brookings. This is no time for idiocy. You stand just as much chance of killing Satan as... Please, doctor, don't talk like that. I will still squeamish. Your pussy-footing always did give me an acute pain. I'm for direct action. Direct word. Direct deed. First, last, and all the time. I repeat, you have exactly as much chance of killing Richard Seton as a blind Keaton has. How do you arrive at that conclusion, Doctor? You seem to be very fond of belittling our abilities. Personally, I think we shall be able to obtain our objectives within a few weeks certainly long before you can possibly return from such an extended trip as you have in mind. And since you're so fond of frankness, I will say that I think Seaton has you buffaloed. Nine-tenths of these wonderful osnomium things, I am assured by competent authorities, are scientifically impossible, and I think that the other one-tenth exists only in your own imagination. Seton was lucky in that airplane bomb was defective. It exploded prematurely. And your spaceship got hot because of your high speed, through the atmosphere. We shall have everything settled by the time you get back. If you have, I'll make you a present of the controlling interest in steel and buy myself a chair in some home for feeble-minded old women. Your ignorance and unwillingness to believe any new idea do not change the facts in any particular. Even before they went to Osnome, Seton was hard to get, as you found out. On that trip, he learned so much new stuff, that it is now impossible to kill him by any ordinary means. You should realize that fact when he kills every gangster you send against him. At all events, be very, very careful not to kill his wife in any of your attacks, even by accident, until after you have killed him. Such an event would be regrettable, certainly, in that it would remove all possibility of abduction. It would remove more than that, you fool. Remember the explosion in our laboratory that blew an entire mountain into impalpable dust? Draw in your mind a nice vivid picture of one ten times the size in each of our plants and in this building. I know you are a fool enough to go ahead with your own ideas in spite of everything I've said. And since I do not yet actually control steel, I cannot forbid you officially. But you should know that I know what I'm talking about. And I say again, you're going to make an utter fool of yourself. Just because you won't believe anything possible that has not been done every day for a hundred years. I wish that I could make you understand. Seton and Crane have got something we do not. But for the good of our plants, and incidentally for your own, please remember one thing. For if you forget it, we won't have a plant left, and you personally will be blown into a fine red mist. Whatever you start, kill Seton first, and be absolutely certain he is definitely, completely, finally and totally dead before you touch one of Dorothy Seton's red hairs. As long as you only attack him personally, he won't do anything but kill every man you send against him. If you kill her while he's still alive, well, bluey. And the Saturnine scientist waved both hands, in an expressive pantomime of wholesale destruction. Probably you're right in that. Brookings paled slightly. Yes, Seaton would do just that. We shall be very careful until after we succeed in removing him. Don't worry, you won't succeed. I shall attend to that detail myself as soon as I get back. Seaton and Crane and their families, the directors and employees of their plants... The banks that by any possibility may harbor their notes or solutions. In short, every person and everything standing between me and the monopoly of X. All shall disappear. That's a terrible program, Doctor. Wouldn't the late Perkins' plan of abduction, such as I have in mind, be better, safer, quicker? Yes, except for the fact that it will not work. I've talked until I'm blue in the face. I prove to you over and over, you cannot abduct her now without first killing him. And you can't even touch him. My plan is the only one that will work. Satan isn't the only one who learned anything. I learned a lot myself. I learned one thing in particular. Only four other inhabitants of either Earth or Osnome ever had an inkling of it. And they died, with their brains disintegrated beyond breathing. That thing is my ace in the hole. I'm going after it. When I get it, and not until then, will I be ready to take the offensive. You intend on starting open war when you return? The war started when I tried to pick off the women with my attractor. That is why I'm leaving at midnight. He always goes to bed at 11.30, and I will be out of range of his object compass before he wakes up. Seton and I understand each other perfectly. We both know that the next time we meet, One of us is going to be resolved into his component atoms, perhaps into electrons. He doesn't know he's going to be the one, but I do. My final word to you is to lay off. If you don't, you and your competent authorities are going to learn a lot. You don't care to inform me more fully as to your destination or your plans, do you? I do not. Goodbye. Chapter 2 DUNARK VISITS EARTH Martin Crane reclined in a massive chair, the fingers of his right hand lightly touching those of his left, listening attentively. Richard Seaton strode up and down the room before his friend, his unruly brown hair on end, speaking savagely between teeth clenched upon the stem of his reeking, battered briar pipe, brandishing a sheaf of papers. Mart, we're stuck. Stop dead. My heart wasn't made of solid blue mush. I'd have found a way long ago out of this. But I can't. With that zone of force, the Skylark would have everything imaginable. Without it, we're exactly where we were before. That zone is immense, man. Its possibilities are unthinkable. And I'm so dumb, I can't find out how to use it intelligently. Can't use it at all, for that matter. By its very nature, it's impenetrable to any form of matter, however applied. And this calculation here, he slapped viciously the sheaf of papers containing his calculations, shows that it must also be opaque to any wave, whatever, propagating through the air or through the ether, clear down to cosmic rays. Behind it, we'd be blind, we'd be helpless, we wouldn't be able to use it at all. Drives me absolutely frantic. Think of it, a barrier of pure force, impalpable, immaterial, exerted along a geometrical surface of no thickness whatever, and yet actual enough to stop even a Millikan ray that travels a hundred thousand light-years and then goes through twenty-seven solid feet of lead like it was so much vacuum. That's what we're up against. You're getting idiotic again, Dick. Crane rejoined calmly without moving. You know even better than I do that you're playing with the most concentrated essence of energy that the world has ever seen. That zone of force probably can be generated. Probably nothing, barked Seaton. It's just as evident a fact as that stool. He kicked the unoffending bit of furniture halfway across the room as he spoke. If you would have let me, I'd have shown you this yesterday. Undoubtedly, then, grant that it is impenetrable to all matter and to all known waves. Suppose it should prove impenetrable also to gravitation and to magnetism. Those phenomena probably depend upon the ether, but we know nothing fundamental of their nature, nor that of the ether either. Therefore, your calculations, comprehensive though they may be, cannot predict the effect upon them of your zone of force. Suppose that that zone actually does set up a barrier in the ether, so that it nullifies gravitation, magnetism, and all allied phenomenon, so that the power bars, the attractors, and repellers can't work through it. Then what? As well as showing me the zone of force, you might well have shown me yourself flying into space, unable to use your power and helpless, if you release the zone. No. We have to know more of the fundamentals before you can try even a small-scale experiment. Ah, hell. You're carrying caution to extremes, Mart. What can happen? Even if gravitation is nullified, I'd only rise slowly, heading south the angle of our latitude. That's 39 degrees away from the perpendicular. I couldn't shoot off at a tangent. Inertia would make me keep pace, approximately with the Earth in its rotation. I'd rise slowly, only as fast as the tangent departs from the curvature of the Earth's surface. I haven't figured out how fast yet, but it would be slow. Slow, Crane smiled. Well, then figure it out. All right, but I bet it's slower than the rise of a toy balloon. Seaton threw down the papers and picked up his slide rule, a 20-inch trigometrical duplex. You'll concede it's allowable to neglect the radial component of the orbital velocity of the Earth for a first approximation, right? Or shall I figure that in too? You may ignore that factor. All right, let's see. Radius of rotation here in Washington. Uh, cosine latitude times equatorial radius. Call it 3,200 miles. Angular velocity, 15 degrees an hour, Uh, secant less than 1 times 3,200, right? Secant equals 1 over cosine, Uh, 1.035, then 0.035 times 3,200, 112 miles first hour, velocity constant with respect to the sun, accelerated respecting point of departure. Ooh, all right, you win, Mart. I would move out pretty quick. All right, how about this then? I'll put on a vacuum suit and carry rations. Harness outside with the same equipment I used in the test flights before we built Skylark 1, plus the new stuff and a coil. Then I throw on the zone and see what happens. Uh, There can't be any jar in taking off, and with that outfit, I can get back okay if I go clear to Jupiter. Crane sat in silence, his keen mind considering every aspect of the motions possible of velocity, acceleration, and inertia. He already knew well Seton's resourcefulness in crises and his physical and mental strength. "'As far as I can see, that might be safe,' he admitted finally. "'And we really should know something about it besides the theory.' "'Great, Mart. Let's get busy. I'll be ready in five minutes. "'Yell for the girls, okay?' They'd break us off at the ankles if we put anything new up without letting them in on it. A few minutes later, the girls strode out into Crane Field, arms around each other. Dorothy Seaton, her gorgeous auburn hair framing violet eyes and vivid coloring, black-haired, dark-eyed Margaret, Crane.
1: Wow, it's cold,
0: Dorothy shivered, wrapping her coat more closely around her.
1: This must be the coldest day Washington has ever seen. It is cold, Margaret agreed. I wonder what they're going to do out here in this kind of weather.
0: As she spoke, the two men stepped out of the testing shed, the huge structure that housed their osnomium-built space cruiser, Skylark 2. Seaton waddled clumsily, wearing as he did a crane vacuum suit, which built of furs, canvas, metal, and transparent silica, embraced by steel netting and equipped with air tanks and heaters, rendered its wearer independent of outside conditions of temperature and pressure. Outside the suit, he wore a heavy harness of leather, buckled about his body, shoulders, and legs, attached to which were numerous knobs, switches, dials, bake-like cases, and other pieces of apparatus. Carried by a strong aluminum framework and turn supported by the harness, the universal bearing of a small power bar rose directly from his grotesque-looking helmet.
1: What do you think you're going to do in that thing, Dickie?
0: Dorothy called. Then,
1: knowing he couldn't hear her, she turned to Crane. What are you letting that precious husband of mine do this time, Martin? He looks as though he were up to something.
0: While she was speaking, Seaton had snapped the release on his faceplate. Nothing much, Dotty. Just going to show you all the Zone of Force. Mart wouldn't let me turn it on unless I got all cocked up and primed for a year's journey into space.
1: Dot, what's that Zone of Force, anyway? asked Margaret. Oh, it's something Dick got into his head during that awful fight they had on Osnome. He hasn't thought of anything else since we got back. You know how the attractors and repellers work? Well, he found out something funny about the way everything acted... While the Mardonalians were bombarding them with a certain kind of wavelength, he finally figured out the exact ray that did it and found out that if it's made strongly enough, it acts as if a repeller and a tractor were working together, only so much more stronger that nothing can get through the boundary either way. In fact, it's so strong that it cuts anything in two that's in its way. And the funny thing is that there's nothing there at all, really. But Dick says that the forces meeting there, or something, make it act as though Something really important were there. You see? Uh-huh,
0: assented Margaret doubtfully, just as Crane finished the final adjustments and moved toward them. A safe distance away from Seaton, he turned and waved his hand. Instantly, Seaton disappeared from view, and around the place where he had stood there appeared a shimmering globe, some twenty feet in diameter. A globe, apparently, a perfectly spherical mirror, which darted upward and toward the south. After a moment, the globe disappeared and Seaton was again seen. He was now standing upon a hemispherical mass of earth. He darted back toward the group upon the ground while the mass of earth fell with a crash a quarter of a mile away. High above their heads, the mirror again encompassed Seaton, and again shot upward and southward. Five times this maneuver was repeated before Seaton came down, landing easily in front of them and opening his helmet. "'It's just what we thought it was, only worse,' he reported. "'Can't do a thing with it. "'Gravitation won't work through it. "'Bars won't. "'Nothing will. "'And dark. "'Dark. "'Folks, you ain't never seen no darkness "'nor heard no silence like this. "'It scared me stiff.'
1: "'Poor little boy, afraid of the dark,' exclaimed Dorothy. "'We saw absolute blackness in space.'
0: Not like this, you didn't, Dot. I just saw absolute darkness and heard absolute silence for the first time in my life. I never imagined anything like it. Come on up with me and I'll show it to you. No, you won't, his wife shrieked as she retreated toward Crane. Some other time, maybe. Seaton removed the harness and glanced at the spot from which he had taken off, where now appeared a hemispherical hole in the ground. Let's see what kind of tracks I left, Mart. And the two men bent over the depression. They saw with astonishment that the cut surface was perfectly smooth, with not even the slightest roughness or irregularity visible. Even the smallest loose grains of sand had been sheared in two along a mathematically exact hemispherical surface by the inconceivable force of the disintegrating copper bar. Well, that show wins, though. An alarm bell sounded. Without a glance around, Seaton seized Dorothy and leapt into the testing shed. Dropping her unceremoniously to the floor, he stared through the telescope's sight of an enormous ray generator, which had automatically aligned itself upon the distant point of liberation of intra-atomic energy, which had caused the alarm to sound. One hand on the switch, his face was hard and merciless as he waited to make sure of the identity of the approaching spaceship, before he released the frightful power of his generator upon it. I've been expecting Duquesne to try it again, he gritted, striving to make out the visitor yet more than 200 miles distant. He's out to get you, Dot, and this time I'm not just going to warm him up and scare him away like I did last time. This time that misguided mutt's going to get frizzled, right? I can't locate him with the small telescope, Mart, because you line him up in the big one and give me the word, okay? I see him, Dick. But it's not Duquesne's ship. It's built of transparent Aranac, like the Kondal. Even though it seems impossible, I believe it is the Kondal. Maybe so, and again, maybe Duquesne built it or stole it. On second thought, no, I don't believe Duquesne will be fool enough to tackle us again the same way. But I'm taking no chances. Wait. Wait, wait. It is the Kondal. I can actually see Dunark and Sitar myself now. The transparent vessels soon neared the field, and the four terrestrials walked out to greet their osnomium friends. Through Arunak walls, they recognized Dunark, Kofidex of Kondal at the controls, and saw Sitar, his beautiful young queen, lying in one of the seats near the wall. She attempted a friendly greeting, but her face was strained as though she were laboring under a burden, too great for her to bear. As they watched, Dunark slipped a helmet over his head and went over Sitar's and pressed a button to open one of the doors and supported her toward the opening.
1: Dick, they mustn't come out, exclaimed Dorothy in dismay. They'll freeze to death in five minutes without any clothes on. Yes, and
0: Sitar can't stand up under our gravitation either. I doubt if Dunark can for very long. And Seton dashed toward the vessel motioning the visitor back. But misunderstanding the signal, Dunark came on. As he clambered heavily through the door, he staggered as though under enormous weight, and Sitar collapsed upon the frozen ground. Trying to help her, half-kneeling over her, Dunark struggled, his green skin paling to a yellowish tinge at the touch of the bitter and unexpected cold. Seton leapt forward and gathered Sitar up in his mighty arms as though she were a child. Help Dunark back in, Mart, he directed crisply. Hop in, girls. We've got to take these folks back up where they can live. Seaton shut the door, and as everyone lay flat in their seats, Crane, who had taken the controls, applied one notch of power, and the huge vessel leapt upward. Miles of altitude were gained before Crane brought the cruiser to a stop and locked her in place with an anchoring attractor. There. He remarked calmly, gravitation here is approximately the same "'as it is upon Osnome.' "'Yes,' put in Seton, "'standing up and shedding clothes in all directions. "'And I rise to remark that we'd better undress "'as far as the law allows. "'Perhaps farther. "'I never did like Osnomium ideas of comfortable warmth, "'but we can endure it by peeling down to the bedrock.' "'Sitar jumped up happily, completely restored, "'and the three women threw their arms around each other.' "'What a horrible, terrible, frightful world!' exclaimed Sitar, her eyes widening as she thought
1: of her first experience on earth. "'Much as I love you, I shall never dare to try to visit you again. I have never been able to understand why you terrestrials wear what you call clothes, nor why you are so terribly, brutally strong. And now I know—' I will feel the utterly cold and savage embrace of that awful earth of yours as long as I live. Oh, it's not so
0: bad, Sitar, Seton, who was shaking both of Dunark's hands vigorously, assured her over his shoulder. All depends on where you were raised. We like it that way. and osnome gives us the pip. But you poor fish, turning again to Dunark, with all my brains inside your skull, you should have known what you were letting yourself in for. That is true, after a fashion, Tanark admitted. But your brain told me that Washington was hot. If I'd have thought to recalculate your actual Fahrenheit degrees into our laurel, but that figure is only forty-seven, and while very cold, we could have endured it. Wait a minute, I'm getting it. You have what you call seasons. This, then, must be your winter, am I right? Right the first time. That's the way your brain pan works behind my pan, too. I can figure anything out all right after it happened, but hardly ever beforehand. So I guess I can't blame you much at that. But what I want to know is, is how'd you get here? It would take more than my brains. You can't see our sun from anywhere near Osnome, even if you knew exactly where to look for it. Oh, easy. Remember those wrecked instruments you threw out of Skylock 1 when we been Skylock 2? having every minute detail of the configuration of Seton's brain engraved upon his own, Dunark spoke English in Seton's own characteristic careless fashion. Only when thinking deeply or discussing abstruse matters did Seton employ the carefully selected and precise phrasing, which he knew so well how to use. Well, none of them was beyond repair, and the juice was still on most of them. One was an object compass bearing on earth. We simply fixed the bearings, put on some minor improvements, And here we are. Let us all sit down and be comfortable, he continued, changing into the Kandalian tongue without a break, and I will explain why we have come. We are in most desperate need of two things which you alone can supply, salt and that strange metal, X. Salt I know you have in great abundance, but I know that you have very little of the metal. You have only the one compass upon that planet. That's all. One is all we set on it. "'However, we've got close to a half a ton of the metal on hand. "'You can have all you want. "'Even if I took it all, which I would not like to do, "'that would be less than half enough. "'We must have at least one of your tons, "'and two tons would be much better.' Two tons? Holy cats! "'Are you going to plate a fleet of battle cruisers? "'More than that, we must plate an entire area of copper "'of some ten thousand square miles.' In fact, the very life of our entire race depends upon it. "'It is this way,' he continued as the four earth-beings stared at him in wonder. "'Shortly after you left Osnome, "'we were invaded by the inhabitants of the third planet of our fourteenth sun. "'Luckily for us they landed upon Mardonal, "'and in less than two days there was not a single Osnomium left alive "'upon that half of the planet. "'They wiped out our grand fleet in one brief engagement.' and it was only the Kandal and a few more Laika that enabled us to keep them from crossing the ocean. Even with our full force of these vessels, we cannot defeat them. Our regular Kondalian weapons are useless. We shot explosive copper charges against them of such size as to cause earthquakes all over Osnome without seriously crippling their defenses. Their offensive weapons are almost irresistible. They have generators that burn Aranak as though it was so much paper and a series of deadly frequencies against which only a copper-driven ray-screen is effective, and even that does not stand up for very long. How come you last until now, then? They have nothing like the Skylark, and no knowledge of interatomic energy. Therefore their spaceships are of the rocket type, and for that reason they can cross only at the exact time of conjunction, or whatever you call it. No, not conjunction exactly, since the two planets do not revolve around the same sun, but when they are closest to each other. Our solar system is so complex, you know, that unless the trips are timed exactly to the hour, the vessels will not be able to land upon Osnome, but will be drawn aside and lost, if not actually drawn into the vast central sun. Although it may not have occurred to you, a little reflection will show that the inhabitants of all the central planets, such as Osnom, must perforce, be absolutely ignorant of astronomy and all the wonders of outer space. Before your coming, we knew nothing beyond our own solar system, and very little of that. We knew the existence of only such of the closest planets as were brilliant enough to be seen in our continuous sunlight, and they were few. Immediately after your coming, I gave your knowledge of astronomy to a group of our foremost physicists and mathematicians, and they have been working ceaselessly from spaceships, close enough so that observations could be recalculated to Osnome and yet far enough away to afford perfect seeing, as you call it. "'But I don't know anything more about astronomy than a pig does about Sunday,' protested Seaton. "'Your knowledge of the details is, of course, incomplete,' conceded Dunark. "'But the detailed knowledge of the best of your earthly astronomers would not help us a great deal, since we are so far removed from you in space. You, however, have a very clear and solid knowledge of the fundamentals of the science,' And that is what we need above all things. Well, maybe you're right at that. I do know the general theory of motion, and i study some celestial mechanics. I'm awfully weak on advanced theory, though, as you'll find out when you get that far. Perhaps, but since our enemies have no knowledge of astronomy whatsoever, it is not surprising that their rocket ships can be launched at only one favorable time. For there are many planets and satellites of which... They can know nothing to throw their vessels off course. Some material essential to the operation of their war machinery apparently must come from their own planet, for they have ceased attacking. They have dug in and are simply holding their ground. It may be that they had not anticipated as much resistance as we could offer with spaceships and intra-atomic energy. At any rate, they have apparently saved enough of that material to enable them to hold out until the next conjunction. I cannot think of a better word for it. Our forces are attacking constantly, with all the armament at our command. But it is certain that if the next conjunction is allowed to occur, it means the end of the entire Condolian nation. What do you mean if the next conjunction is allowed to occur? Interjected Seton. Nobody can stop that. I am stopping it, Dunark stated quietly, with grim purpose in every lineament of his face. That conjunction shall never occur. That is why I must have vast quantities of salt and X. We are building abutments of ironac upon the first satellite of our seventh planet and upon our sixth planet itself. We shall cover them with plated active copper and install chronometers to throw the switches at precisely the right moment. We have calculated the exact times, places and magnitudes of the forces to be used. We shall throw the sixth planet some distance out of its orbit and force the first satellite of the seventh planet, clear out of the planet's influence. The two bodies whose motions we have thus changed will collide in such a way that the resultant body will meet the planet of our enemies in a head-on collision long before the next conjunction. The two bodies will be of almost equal masses and will have opposite and approximately equal velocities. Hence the resultant fused or gaseous mass, will be practically without velocity and will fall directly into the 14th Sun. Wouldn't it be easier to destroy it with an explosive copper bomb? Easier, yes, but much more dangerous to the rest of the solar system. We cannot calculate exactly the effect of the collisions we are planning, but it is almost certain that an explosion of sufficient violence to destroy all life upon the planet would disturb its motion sufficiently to endanger the entire system. The way we have in mind will simply allow the planet and one satellite to drop out quietly. The other planets of the same sun will soon adjust themselves to the new conditions, and the system at large will be practically unaffected. At least we believe so. Seaton's eyes narrowed as his thoughts turned to the quantities of copper and X required and to the engineering features of the project. Crane's first thought was of the mathematics involved, and in computation of that magnitude and
1: direction. Dorothy's quick reaction was one of pure horror. "He can't, Dick! He mustn't do this! It would be too ghastly! It's-it's unthinkable! It's simply too horrible!" Her
0: violet eyes flamed, and Margaret joined in.
1: "Yes, I agree. It would be awful, Martin. Think of the destruction of a whole planet. An entire world with all its inhabitants it makes me shudder even to think of it. Dunark
0: leapt to his feet, eyes blazing. But before he could say a word, Seaton silenced him. Shut up, Dunark. Pipe down. Don't say anything you'll be sorry for. Let me tell them. Close your mouth, I tell you. As Dunark still tried to get a word in, I tell you, I'll tell them. And when I tell them, they stay told. Now listen, you two. You're going off half-cocked, and you're both full of little red ants. What do you think Dunark is up against? Sherman chirped it when he described a war. This is a real he-war, a brand totally unknown on Earth. It isn't a question of whether or not to destroy a population. The only question is which population is going to be destroyed. One of them is going to go. Remember those folks who went to a war thoroughly and there isn't a thought even remotely resembling our conception of mercy in any of their minds on either side. If Dunark's plans go through, the enemy nation will be wiped out. Yes, that's horrible, of course. But on the other hand, if we block him off from the salt and X, the entire Kondalian nation will be destroyed, just as thoroughly and just as efficiently, and even more horribly. And not one man, woman, or child will be spared. Which nation do you want to save, girls? Play that over a couple of times on your anning machine, Dot, and let me know what you get. Dorothy, taken aback, opened and closed her mouth twice before she found her voice.
1: But, Dick, they couldn't possibly. Would they kill them all? Honey, surely they wouldn't. They couldn't.
0: Surely they would, and they could. They do. It's good technique in those parts of the galaxy. Dunark has just told us of how they killed every member of the entire race of Mardinalians in 40 hours. Kondal would go the same way. Don't kid yourself, Dimples. Don't be a stupid kid. War up there is no species of pink tea, believe me. Half of my brain has been through 30 years of Osnomium warfare. I know precisely what I'm talking about. Let's take a vote. Personally, I'm in favor of Osnome. Mart? Osnab. Dottie? Peggy? Both remained silent for some time. Then Dorothy turned to Margaret.
1: You tell him, Peggy. We both feel the same way. Dick, you know that we wouldn't want the Kondalians destroyed. But the other thing is so... Well, such an utter kite. Isn't there some other way out?
0: I'm afraid not. But if there is any other possible way... I'll help find it, he promised. The eyes have it. Dunark will skip over to that X-planet and load you up. Dunark grasped Seaton's hand. Thank you, Dick, he said simply. But before you help me further, and lest I might be in some degree sailing under false colors, I must tell you that wearer of the Seven Disks, though you are, overlord of Osnome, though you might be, my brain brother, though you are, had you decided against me, Nothing but my death could have kept me away from that salt and your ex-compass. Why, sure, assented Seaton in surprise. Why not? Fair enough. Anybody would do the same. Don't let that bother you. How was your supply of platinum? asked Dunark. Pretty low. We had about decided to hop over there after some. I want some of your textbooks on electricity and so on, too. I see you brought a load of platinum with you. Yes, a few hundred tons. We also brought along an assortment of books I know you'd be interested in. A box of radium, a few small bags of gems of various kinds, and some of our fabrics. Sitar thought your carfidero would like to have them. While we are here, I would like to get some books on chemistry and some other things. We'll get you the Congressional Library if you want it, and anything else you think you'd like. Well, gang, let's go places and do things. What to do, Mart? We had better drop back to Earth, have the laborers unload the platinum and load on salt, books and other things. Then both ships will go to the X-Planet, as we will each want compasses on it for the future. While we are loading, I should like to begin remodeling our instruments, to make them something like these, with Duloc's permission. These instruments are wonders, Dick, vastly ahead of anything I've ever seen. Come and look at them if you want to see something really beautiful. Coming up, but say, Mart, when I think of it, we can't forget to install a zone of force apparatus on this boat too. Even though we can't use it intelligently, it certainly would be a winner as a defense. We couldn't hurt anybody through it, of course, but if we should happen to be getting a licking anywhere, all we'd have to do would be to wrap ourselves up in it. They couldn't touch us. Nothing in the ether spectrum is corkscrewy enough to get through it.
1: That's the second big idea you've had since I've known you, Dickie.
0: Dorothy smiled at Crane.
1: Do you think he should be allowed to run at large, Martin?
0: That is a real idea. We may need it. You can never tell. Even if we never find any other use for the Zone of Force, that one is amply sufficient to justify its installation. Yes, it would be for you, and I'm getting to be a regular Safety First Simon myself since they opened up on us. What about those instruments now? The three men gathered around the instrument board, Dunark explained the changes he had made, and to such men as Seaton and Crane, it was soon evident that they were examining an installation embodying sheer perfection of instrumental control, a system which only those wonder instrument makers, the Osnomiums, could have devised. The new object compasses were housed in Aranac cases after setting, and the housings were then exhausted to the highest attainable vacuum. Oscillation was set up by means of one carefully standardized electrical impulse, instead of by the clumsy finger-touch the Seton had used. The bearings, built of Aranac and Osnomium jewels, were as strong as the axles of a truck, yet they were almost perfectly frictionless. I like them myself, admitted Dunark. Without a load, the needles would rotate freely more than a thousand hours on a primary impulse, as against a few minutes of the old type, and under load they are many thousands of times as sensitive. You're a blinding flash and a deafening report, Ace, declared "Seaton enthusiastically. That compass is as far ahead of my model as the Skylark is ahead of Wright's first glider. The other instruments were no less noteworthy. Dunark had adopted the Perkins telephone system, but had improved it until it was scarcely recognized and had made it capable of almost unlimited range. Even the guns, heavy rapid-firers mounted in spherical bearings in the walls, were aimed and fired by remote control from the board. He had devised full automatic steering controls and meters and recorders for acceleration, velocity, distance, and flight angle. He had perfected a system of periscopic vision which enabled the pilot to see the entire outside surfaces of the shell, and to look toward any point of the heavens without interference. "'This kind of takes my eye, too, Prince,' Seaton said, as he seated himself and swung a large, concave disc in front of him, and experimented with levers and dials. "'You certainly can't call this thing a periscope. "'It's no more a periscope than I am a polyp. "'When you look through this plate, it's better than looking out of a window.' It subtends more than the angle of vision, so that you can't see anything but out of doors. I thought for a second I was going to fall out. What do you call them, Dunark? Colotto. That would be, in English, a seeing plate? Or perhaps call it a visiplate? That's a good word. Mart, take a look if you want to see a set of perfect lenses and prisms. Crane looked into the visiplate and gasped. The vessel had disappeared. He was looking directly down upon the earth below him. No trace of chromatic, spherical, or astigmatic aberration, he reported in surprise. The refracting system is invisible. It seems as though nothing intervenes between the eye and the object. You perfected all these things since we left Osborne, Dunark. You're in a class by yourself. I couldn't even copy them in less than a month. I never could have invented them. I did not do it alone by any means. The Society of Instrument Makers, of which I am only one member, installed and tested more than a hundred systems. This one represents the best features of all the systems tried. It will not be necessary for you to copy them. I brought along two complete duplicate sets for the Skylark, as well as a dozen or so of the compasses. I thought perhaps these particular improvements might not have occurred to you, since you terrestrials are not as familiar as we are with complex instrumental work. Crane and Seton spoke together. That was very thoughtful of you, Dunark, and we really appreciate it. That puts four more palms on your croix de guerre, Ace. Thanks a lot. Say, Dick, called Dorothy from her seat near the wall,
1: if we're going down to the ground, how about sitar?
0: By lying down and not doing anything, and by staying in the vessel where it is warm. She will be all right in the short time we must stay here, Dunark answered for his wife. I will help all I can, but I do not know how
1: much that will be. It isn't so bad lying down, Sitar agreed. I don't like your earth a bit, but I can stand it a little while. Anyway, I must stand it, so why worry about it?
0: a girl, cheered Seton. And as for you, Dunark, you'll pass the time just like Sitar does, lying down. If you do much chasing around down there where we live, you're apt to get your lights and your liver twisted all out of shape. So you just stay put, horizontal. We've got men enough around the shop to eat this cargo in three hours, let alone unload it. While they unload and load you up, we'll install the zone apparatus, put a compass on you, and put one of yours on us. Then you can hop back up here where you'll be comfortable. Then as soon as we get the lark ready for the trip, we'll jump up here and be on our way. Everything clear? Cut the rope Mart. We'll let the old bucket drop.